today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. It wasn't that long ago we were talking about Sears Canada uh, going under, going bankrupt, and all those stores in shopping malls across the land, of course, now vacant, giant spaces. And, uh, and of course, then we talked about how Sears Canada and the United States, two different uh, entities, now we're finding out that Sears in the U.S. has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Here's what Jim Ryan of ABC News had to say. Sears Holdings Corporation, the owner of Sears and Kmart, has been working with its lenders in recent days to allow hundreds of its locations to stay open through the holidays. Sears is expected to shut down 150 stores immediately, but the bankruptcy filing isn't necessarily the end of the company, which was founded in 1892. The Wall Street Journal says Sears leadership hopes to reorganize 300 more profitable locations of Sears and Kmart. Jim Ryan, ABC News. All right, let's bring in Bruce Winder, retail expert, uh, speaking consultant and of course uh, guru in this sort of thing he is with us now Bruce thanks for the time much appreciated hey no problem thanks for having me on Scott. first before we get to Sears explain what chapter 11 means it doesn't necessarily mean the end of this company yet does it no not necessarily I mean what it is we have something in Canada called CCAA but basically chapter 11 in the US means that you've got a court order to prevent your creditors ie the people you owe money from going after you and seizing your assets. It gives you time to restructure to try to become a going concern. It gives you time to potentially renegotiate with your creditors. We certainly saw what happened to Sears Canada. Is the same thing happening in the United States? Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit different, but yeah, it's pretty much the same thing. I mean, Sears has been on a significant downward trajectory for the last decade, at least, in both Canada and the U.S. And Everyone in the industry, I mean, this is a sad day, but it's not in any way a newsflash for anyone in the industry. We all knew this was coming. It was just a matter of when. And these are uh, two separate companies, or were two separate companies. Uh, Was there any any synergies there at all? Yeah, there was a little bit. I mean, Sears, for a while there, Sears Holdings, which is the Sears U.S. uh, division, um, owned a good chunk of Sears Canada. They sold some off. They tried to sell more off. Um, So there was... Some synergies between the two companies, um, but probably not as many as you think from a day-to-day operation standpoint. I used to work at Sears Canada, and uh, you know we had to sort of uh, swim upstream to try to get information from the U.S. parent. But uh, so there was kind of limited day-to-day synergies, but there was definitely uh, some ownership there. So how does, and you said you worked for Sears for a point, uh, how did the company that started the mail order catalog business not see all of this coming, considering companies like Amazon are basically doing what they started to do, what Sears started to do, except with a modern uh, technological model? How did they not see this? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, a lot of folks will be asking that today and going forward. I mean, Sears was the powerhouse in American retail and in Canadian retail. You know, if you go back about, say, 20, 25 years ago, and really what started this was the emergence of the discount segment. So the Walmarts of the world uh, came in, you know, to the U.S., etc., and the department store sector, which is really where Sears was a powerhouse. Um, you know, they, they started to trip up significantly from the likes of folks like uh, Walmart and, and Target, and they never really recovered from that. So they were sort of on a defense starting sort of in the early 90s. So that's and really before the online craze took off. It really is. I mean, they they sort of took the first hit once the discount segment really emerged kind of, kind of in the 80s, 90s, and then they never really recovered from that. They were bought by a hedge fund company um, in, in and around the mid 
2000s. And from then on, it really went downhill fast. Um, You know, that hedge fund company, some would say, did not invest in the business, really just sort of, you know, move things around financially to try to harvest as many dividends and gains from the existing business. And it was sort of on a slow freefall over the last decade and a half in terms of just sort of, some would say, sort of milking the business of its assets and, uh, you know, having the hedge fund company sort of uh, take some of the dividends from that. So what is the health of this brand? I mean, do people want to see this survive? Is it is it salvageable? No, probably not. I mean, it's it, it's not really a brand to be relevant over you know time. It has to continue to invest. And if you talk to folks who are seniors, you folk talk to folks who are boomers, maybe even Gen Xers like me, we have a familiarity with it. But if you go to sort of the millennials who are becoming more important in today's shopping environment, they do not even really have any positive attributes towards Sears and Gen Gen Z, which is coming up, don't either. So the Sears has a, the, the brand has a lot of dust on it. Now, having said that, the Kenmore brand has a little bit of equity. Um, in the U.S., the Kenmore and the Craftsman brands and the Diehard brands are sort of, you know, some brands that have a little bit of equity there. Craftsman was sold off about a year, year and a half ago to Stanley uh, Black & Decker. And, you know, someone will probably buy the Kenmore brand and, and maybe the Die Hard brand. But the Sears brand itself, you know, has very limited runway, in my opinion. So why would they have sold off those uh, uh, th- those brands with cachet over time? I mean, considering those were the things that were keeping them afloat. I mean, as they were sinking, what they were doing is they were selling off assets to sort of pay the bills to keep the ship afloat, so to speak. And they just kept peeling off their best assets, real estate, brands, anything else they could sell. It's sort of like throwing things overboard in the ship to try to, you know, stay afloat. That's what they were doing to raise cash. And uh, eventually you run out of assets, though, to throw overboard. You run out of assets to sell. And that's kind of when, uh, you know, you kind of hit D-Day here when uh, there's nothing left to sell and you have to declare Chapter 11. So this was more about the evolution of the department store than it was online shopping. Um, it was it was kind of all the above, but yeah, if you had to put one primary thing, I would say the evolution of the department store coupled with, um, you know, a, in my opinion, sort of a lack of investment in the business, a lack of willingness to reinvent yourself were the two big things. And then most recently, the online shopping and the change in demographics was the final nail in the coffin, in my, in my uh, opinion. Where was Sears' weak spot? Like, why did a, a Walmart think, wow, we can just go in and wipe out Sears, which is basically what's happened? Um, price, everyday price. Yeah, that's really what it is, like available. volume buying and just low prices. Yeah, I mean, the department store model had, you know, you kind of had a huge assortment. It was available through mail order, through catalog yeah. and things like that. But everyday prices were high. So folks like Walmart started coming in and say, we can offer you department store quality at a fraction of the price every day. So is is this, there really isn't a hole in the marketplace. It's been filled in. I mean, either you're a discount or you're a higher end uh, retailer. Is, is there a hole left by Sears now? Is there a spot there where others can take advantage or have they already? They already have and there's select holes left. There's just scraps left, right? I mean, I'm sure Sears was doing a few billion dollars in the U.S., you know, it's most recent year, and that'll just be digested if they go out of business here, which I'm assuming they will. It'll be digested by folks like the Home Depot and some other people, you know, who do tools and just everyone who's sort of been picking at the carcass for the last few years will just 
have one final feed and that'll be it. That's really what it's like, isn't it? It's like people Sadly taking it is, yeah. pieces. I don't mean to be morbid, but that's no, what yeah. it's been like. Uh, uh, so how does this change the retail landscape? We remember when Target came into Canada and they bought up our, all these leases for these stores and then all of a sudden they decided it was over and, and we had this issue not only with Target leaving and not being successful, but also these leases and all these large stores within these shopping malls. Is, is, is the same thing going to happen here or has it been downsized enough already it's not going to have that much of an impact will well, the same I mean, thing in happen North in the u.s America, yeah in the u.s too i mean u.s is sort of the same as canada they're a little bit ahead in terms of the evolution of retail so we, we've had a couple of big hits as you mentioned the targets of the world the sears canada's of the world the u.s has been well down that path of of brick and mortar retailers closing down and going bankrupt and this will just leave another black eye just more vacancy in the u.s um, and that market continues to change as we do up here in Canada. And I think you're going to see a bit more of that market change in Canada over the next few years. Because like I said, the U.S. is ahead of us by a few years. So in the end, the store that offers everything, that's an obsolete model now. It is unless you're online like Amazon, <laughs> yeah. which is kind of funny, right? If you're a brick-and-mortar player, you better be either Walmart um, or you better be Dollarama at the low end or you better have a very specific niche or you better be luxury. Otherwise, it's tough going. So do you think this is the last kick at the can for Sears? I mean, they say that they, it doesn't mean that it's the end, but where do you go from here? Especially as you're heading into a holiday season, uh, are customers going to feel confident buying product from a Sears store? Absolutely not. I mean, customers won't buy anything from Sears. I mean, it's sort of like their grand finale is going to be if they get through the holidays, right? They're trying to get financing or get something set up so they can get through the holidays. But, you know, their holidays is going to be even worse now because, to your point, anyone who held out and still bought major goods from Sears will probably not now because they're afraid of warranties and things like that. So it's going to be sort of their, their final uh, their final ride around the block. And then I think, you know, my opinion personally they're going to be done in the new year if they're not done earlier. Did they do themselves any favors by announcing this prior to Christmas? Well, they had no choice. They had no choice. They had money that was due today. They had a fair chunk of change that was due right. on their lease, and it's either pay the bill or the shark circle. So they had to uh, put up a net to keep the sharks at bay. Bruce Winder has been with us, retail sales expert, speaker consultant, and professor when it comes to the world of retailer, U- U.S. Sears filing for chapter, a chapter 11 bankruptcy. Bruce, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, thanks a lot. Have a great day. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, U.S. edition of Sears filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Of course, it wasn't that long ago we were talking about the demise of Sears Canada. To talk more about all of this, Michael Veal is with us, professor with the Department of Economics, McMaster University. He is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Glad to be here. Michael, how come a company that started in the mail order business way back when uh, with catalogs and, and all of that sort of thing uh, didn't see this industry changing? Because basically, isn't Amazon doing just an updated version of they what they were doing way back when? Yes, I've always wondered about this. I thought that Sears had the head start and that this change to online business would just work very well for them. They've been doing think- it since the late 1800s. That's right. I think um, it turned out that the small change that they had to make uh, was more difficult for them than somebody like Amazon coming in and and, uh, basically starting from scratch and and doing the online business that way. And I think part of the reason was that they 
uh, were slow to deal with delivery issues, that um, Amazon basically went with FedEx-type delivery, and that was a um, very effective means of getting a lot of customers involved. Sears, for a long time, persisted in uh, most of the delivery was to their local outlets, and they uh, took a while before they got their delivery system to be anywhere close to what Amazon was, was doing. And then I think the other problem with that was uh, the Sears method of doing business meant they took a lot of uh, merchandise back, mm. and that's always been a plague for them. Uh, was it more technology that is the demise of Sears, or is it just the changing of the department store? Because well, the changing they, of the department store and the Walmart sort of happened a little bit before the whole online uh, craze. Yeah, I, I think it was mostly that they were in a position to benefit more from online business than they did, and other entrants came in who were better at it. And as I said, that, that had to do with a lot of things, but partly because Sears was not able to adjust its business model enough uh, to meet the current conditions. Too late to turn this around now? I think so. Uh, uh, it's not for sure. Of course, bankruptcy means that uh, there is a chance to regroup. Uh, we saw what happened in Canada, though, the initial closing of stores, and they said, well, maybe we'll keep some stores open, but in the end, that didn't happen. I think the trouble is their brand just isn't worth that much anymore. Mm. And, uh, and when that happens... They don't really have that much more than a brand because they've sold all their real estate pretty much. Uh, they did that to get cash to try to last a little bit longer. Uh, so they're, they don't have a lot of assets except their brand. And if you think their brand isn't worth that much, then they're not worth it. It seems they've sold all the things that were an advantage to Sears, like the, you know, like uh, uh, Craftsman and so on and so forth. So when you take those away, what identity is Sears left with? Yeah, exactly right. They they sold the silverware trying to stay in business, and now that's gone, and there really is a, a great problem for them. Uh, some people say the Kenmore brand might be worth something. I'm not quite sure about that. I don't think there's much left, and at the rate they're losing money, and particularly the amount of money they already owe, uh, it's I think it's going to be a pretty... Uh, pretty quick full bankruptcy, but we're not sure of that, and maybe I'm wrong. I, I guess I hope I'm wrong. Is this hole already being filled? Is it filled already? Uh, is there a space left with the demise of Sears? I think that's their problem. I don't, I, I don't see it. Um, of course, we saw what happened in Canada. Uh, basically, I think this is one of these cases where the Canadian uh, picture uh, just preceded the U.S. situation. They're just going through the same thing just a little bit later. And the problem was that the brand name couldn't be maintained in this online age. Do people associate Sears with your grandparents? I don't know. Maybe it's true. Uh, maybe it's, it, it became too old a brand. Um, I haven't looked at the demographics in terms of uh, their, their purchasing clientele, uh, but I think that might be part of the problem. I, I think, however, that had they adapted well to the online age, uh, they could have survived. Uh, but they didn't. And one of the things about the online age is I think things happen even more quickly in, in this sort of situation than before. And, of course, now the problem is is they try to put new merchandise in their stores or in their warehouses. Everyone's going to want cash, which is what they're short of. Yeah. And when people go, look towards Christmas and make a purchase, well, when you make a purchase towards Christmas, you want to make sure the person can take it back at the store after Christmas, uh, you know, in case you get the wrong size. Um, and Sears is going to be a disadvantage in that. You know, as people begin to get spooked by Sears, they aren't going to buy from them. This is not a good time for this information, especially heading into the holiday season, because who's going to purchase there now? Exactly. I think it's a real problem for them. And, of course, 
the Canadian and the U.S. economies are doing reasonably well now, and they were not able to survive in this kind of economy. Uh, it wouldn't suggest that if, you know, if there were a downturn, uh, it would make it even worse for them. Who is going to take, who is going to reap the most from this in the United States? Or have they already, I guess? You mean who gains? Yeah. Uh, well, Amazon just keeps going, right? I mean, yeah. they, they have, uh, have really done well in this market, so I think that they will be the ones. I, I suppose uh, Walmart is also a, a winner from this, but the other players in the space obviously win. But, you know, they don't win that much because Sears had seen such a diminishing market share. Uh, that it, uh, the, this is really the writing has been on the wall for quite some time. What about how it changes other aspects of the retail landscape? I mean, we saw in uh, Canada when Target came in, bought up all kinds of leases uh, with big stores and in, in malls and such. Are we going to say see the same thing happen uh, uh, in the United States when Sears bails? Are we going to see malls that are going to be in, in in a tough situation because the main tenants left? Um, yes, I think so. They have, of course, closed a bunch of stores already, so uh, that's that's one thing. Um, malls already are, are it's not clear whether they are the the retailing model of the future. Uh, you know whether they can continue to survive when online becomes more and more important. Uh, I think that the jury's out on that one. We'll see, but it's certainly true that there are some malls today. Uh, that will regard this as a very serious problem, that they've lost their anchor store. Will we see others going into that big space, or are more staying away from that now? My best guess is we will see some of the the others, uh, not the Walmart so much, but some of the other players, the smaller chains, but still who run big stores, uh, trying to to fill this in, because basically the real estate will be very cheap, uh, and they'll take a shot at it. Um, and we'll see how they do. Um, there are quite a number of uh, potential players, uh, but none of them are thriving so much as to make it obvious that there's going to be a successor with the kind of name brand recognition that Sears once had. Massive company. What does the world of retail learn from this? Well, I, I do think that uh, one of the things about business is that uh, things can happen relatively quickly and then they can snowball. And I think what happened for Sears was that people stopped shopping there a little bit because uh, they didn't do so well in terms of their adjustment to online issues. And then people get out of the habit, and that kind of snowballs on the firm. And and you you start getting situations where a firm that had like 350,000 employees gets down to having 90,000 employees in a relatively short period of time. You know, 10 years ago, their stock was worth $150 a share. Now it's... uh, not worth anything, basically. That is something in, in just 10 years. Uh, Michael Veal has been with us, professor with the Department of Economics, McMaster University, talking about Sears in the United States filing for Chapter 11. Michael, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're very welcome. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Conservative Party leader Andrew Scheer says that he would have done a better job when negotiating NAFTA and would have got a better deal. Uh, He tweeted that the U.S. is measuring its success in the newly revised North American Free Trade Agreement by what it gained. He said the Liberal government, on the other hand, is defining its success by what it didn't give up. To talk more on all of this, Christo Avalis is with us, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council postdoctoral fellow in history at the University of Toronto and with us now. Christo, thanks as always for the time. Much appreciated. 
Thanks for having me. Uh, another leader, could they have gotten a better deal, or is that just what opposition leaders are supposed to say? You know, it, it could be a bit of both. I mean, I think that, you know, at the end of the day, the opposition is supposed to offer a different perspective on uh, the, the tra- uh, whether it's legislation or a trade deal and say that, you know, there are areas of concern, and, and, and I certainly think that's legitimate. Of course, it's it's uh, your hindsight is twenty twenty, and also as with any bargaining, whether it's between countries or maybe it's collective bargaining between workers and an employer, um, the final deal, you know, certainly has a lot of information in it, but you don't always see how the sausage is made, and that's often you know kind of privy mm. to the core negotiators at the table. So we don't know. We don't know if Canada broke or the U.S. broke. We have no kind of conception. My perspective in the broad term is that, you know, the conservatives were generally of the camp that, you know, a bad deal was better than no deal. And, and, and I think that it's, it's somewhat disingenuous to hear from a, like, the conservatives on a lot of issues, you know, say that this deal could have been better when I think they were more apt to back a lot of Trump positions with maybe the exception of supply management, where, of course, Maxime Bernier was kicked out. Whereas I think maybe from from, from Jagmeet Singh and from the NDP, you're seeing a lot more substantive critiques. I mean, what of, what of supply management? What of um, the potential loss of sovereignty in the countries we choose to trade with? What of the rights of steel workers in Hamilton? You know, these sorts of things. And I think that, you know, that, that's, that's perhaps a more valid perspective. I think Sheer is a bit more um, changing his tune after the deal. Uh, he's talking about how uh, the U.S. celebrating what they've gained. We're just lucky to hang on to what we have. Uh, was that inevitable, or is that reality? I, I mean, at the at the end of the day, the deal it, it appeared in the past seemed to favor Canada. Was it a matter of time before this was corrected? I mean, I don't know if the deal always favored Canada. I mean, under Chapter Eleven, we were the most sued of the three countries in terms of companies suing Canada for 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 a variety of reasons for supposedly, you know, anti-competitive acts or what have you. Maybe those were valid or not, but, you know, Canada faced a lot of constraint uh, under NAFTA, and it was used as a political pretext to attack of a lot of our social programs and what have you. So I don't know if Canada was necessarily the beneficiary, but I do agree generally that Canada, you know, won here by not losing harder. And I don't, but the, but the issue is, is I don't think Andrew Scheer would have done anything differently because I think he would be extra motivated to preserve the kind of free trade deals. And I, and I don't know if it was inevitable. On the one hand, you know, the, 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 the truth of the matter is Canada is much more dependent on the U.S. than, we, than they are on us, although they, we are an important trading partner to them. We're not meaningless. Um, but there are a few wrinkles here that perhaps Trudeau and his team could have exploited more. Um, they could have aligned with progressives in the United States on things like labor rights more directly uh, to push some of those things. They could have, for instance, waited just a little bit longer. The deadline, I don't think, was really a firm deadline um, for a couple reasons. One, we're very close to an election. And I think perhaps more importantly, the right-wingers in the United States, you know, Trump aside, don't want NAFTA to break down. They're generally supportive of free trade. So the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and many congressional Republicans um, wanted Canada in any kind of new NAFTA or whatever we're calling it today. So I don't know if Trump would have had a lot of political clout to just say, Canada's out because, you know, October 31st or October 1st came and went and, you know, the deal, the deal is done. Um, so I think he could have waited. And I think the reality, though, is that, you know, Trudeau, um, you know, felt it was good to get a deal at this point for himself politically. And he can, I, I think, at, at least from a political lens, say, look, we didn't give up too, too much. And, and people can see this as a win. Um, 
And I think that's his political calculus. Uh, we all know how Donald Trump presents things. Did he get the win he wanted? I mean, he certainly will sell it like he did. But uh, again, with Canada saying, oh, we're lucky to get away with what we did. Did Donald Trump get what he wanted or did he just repackage it and rename it and resell it? And now it's an election platform for him. I think Trump is, you know, he doesn't get a lot of credit for being intelligent. I don't think he's especially intelligent, frankly, but I don't think he's uh, he's he's un- unintelligent no. either. Um, and I think the reality is that Trump's interests are, are with free trade, but his core base doesn't like it. And I think a NAFTA that's really not that different. I mean, we did give up some things. There's no doubt about it. But it's not a radical departure from the old NAFTA. There's not, there's not anything that's mm. world shattering in it. And I think that generally represents the interests of Trump and people like Trump, which is that the old NAFTA was really a deal that helped the wealthiest most of all and that certain industries here and there in certain regions benefited more and some benefited less. But at the end of the day, the people who are negotiating it are predominantly, they're not representative of the average working class Joes and Janes of, of any of the three countries. And Trump is of those people, even if part of Trump's success was kind of portraying himself as, you know, I, I care about the common worker. So, you know, he, he's, he's able to point to this and say, look, I was the only president able to negotiate this. Uh, Obama wouldn't have done it. Clinton wouldn't have done it. Probably none of the other Republicans would have done it. And so he's like, I'm the one who did it, and I won these things for Americans, all while he's able to say probably to very wealthy donors, look, at the end of the day, this doesn't really change much. The predominant spirit of free trade continues, and the reality is that, you know, um, you know, this is a political bone to my base because that wall's probably not getting built. And, you know, things and so on and so forth. Right? And I think that's a it's an interesting political move that, you know, I don't think it'll hurt Trump. I don't know if it'll help him, but I, I think it could just, you know, it could have small benefits for him. And as you mentioned, something that really wasn't a pressing issue at this point either. Uh, did his negotiating style work? He talked after the deal that, you know, everybody talked about the tariffs, but at the end of the day, the tariffs helped you know, seal this deal, close this deal. So as, you know, obviously we're both willing to give Donald Trump a little bit of credit. However, usually his his style gets in the way and he ends up shooting himself in the foot and creating his own problems. Um, but in this case, Christo, did his, did his negotiating tactics work? It's, that's a really tricky one because the reality with these sorts of negotiations is they're simultaneously political and technical. On the one hand, you got prime ministers and, and cabinet ministers, you know, uh, Christia Freeland and, 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 and Trudeau and Trump and, and even Jared Kushner and, and Ivanka and all of these figures being involved. But, but they're not doing most of the work. Most of the work is being done by technical people who, um, you know, are, are everything from tax lawyers to in, in international relations lawyers. And, and, they, and they're looking at it very, at a very fine tooth comb. And it's very interesting to kind of juxtapose you know, Trump's view to, uh, you know, towards what was actually being said at the table when none of the big wigs were necessarily around. And that's actually something that I, I would be rather interested in seeing in terms of whether it worked or not. I mean, I'm not sure. I do think that one consequence, and this maybe doesn't affect Trump, is it gives Trudeau a bit more cover because a lot of Canadians, the narrative is that, look, maybe we gave up some stuff. We're not happy. I know a lot of people in Hamilton, for instance, are not happy. They feel that maybe the steel industry has been kind of sold out. I know in a lot of Gary communities, they're a little concerned as well. Uh, and I know in certain auto communities, they're a little bit happier. So there's that kind of like who wins, who loses, who kind of breaks out the same. But a lot of people are saying, 
well, look, look, Trump's a madman, and, and, and all we could hope to do is survive from this. And maybe, maybe that was Trump's goal to kind of scare people into kind of taking a small loss as a victory. And maybe that, you know, Trudeau kind of gets a political benefit from that as well, because he's seen as the guy that, you know, put one of the biggest fires out, potential fires out, you know, as it pertains to us relating to Trump. Um, and then that, that can kind of go away. And, and who knows, um, you know, if Trump, Trump might only be president for two years, two more years, or uh, if the if the polls are right, he's going to lose one of the two houses probably in November. And so maybe we'll we'll have a bit more, um, you know, breathing room when we deal with the United States. Uh, getting back to Andrew Shear, does he have an image problem? Is 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 he doing this just to pick a fight and 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 get some headlines and and show that he's not a quiet meat kind of guy? I mean, I think you have to do that somewhat. I mean, I think I think that you know, there are legitimate ways to critique this legislation, but see, I don't, I, see, I just, I don't know if those are coming from Sheer because I think that you know Sheer, yeah, Sheer might have fought a little bit harder for the dairy farmers. I mean, he he personally, I think, uh, you know, supports farmers, but he owes them politically. They are the reason he's the conservative leader, and Maxime Bernier is not because um, it was so close that even you know the relatively small you know amount of dairy farmer conservative voters gave him the victory. Um, but I, I, I don't know, because I think on a lot of the key issues, whether it's labor rights or indigenous rights, where people wanted stronger stuff, that, 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 those voices aren't coming from the conservatives, they're coming from the new Democrats or from the Greens or what have you. So I don't know what Sheer would have done differently. And again, the conservatives are in a real tricky position here, especially when Bernier was still in the party, where Bernier was almost, he was going on the TV, going on radio and saying Trump is right, supply management needs to die, it's bad for the market and what have you, and that was politically unpopular. And a lot of conservative voices, maybe maybe within the party, but certainly within some strands of media, were basically, you know, saying that we need to get any deal we can. We should bend over and give Trump what he wants. And I think that's a very tricky position because Trump's not popular in Canada. Even among conservative voters, he's very divisive. And so and whereas Trudeau, whether you like him or not personally, remains reasonably popular um for a prime minister who's been office who's been in office a few years, and so a lot of people are very are in a tricky position to critique it. Uh, whether it's the New Democrats or the Conservatives, a lot of people on on social media are like, "Well, no, you need to to, to realize this was the best we could do, and all you're doing is is chirping." And you, how do you know you could do better? And I think that's a tricky position for the opposition to be in right now because unless you can hammer home specific points for example one of them being that we've effectively said that the united states can decide whether or not we choose to trade with china um uh, you know if you unless you can make one of those points stick with voters you're going to be in a tricky position to say this deal is bad because as we know canada did give up things but you know it's going to be hard to explain that in a 30 second soundbite the significance of a 0.3 percent you know increase in the amount of dairy allowed or mm. or what have you right so i think that's a tricky position for the opposition Christo Abelis has been with us, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council Postdoctoral Fellow in History at the University of Toronto. Christo, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Ten years ago, Frankie Benham, teenage head, uh, passed away. Hard to believe, ten years ago. To talk about this, Graham Rockingham is with us, music critic for your Hamilton Spectator. You can read him there and at thespec.com. He is with us now. Graham, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Yeah, it, 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 ten years. I know. Uh, what is that? Again, we feel old. 
he would have uh, uh, he he'd be 62 now hmm. if uh, if he had lived. But I, I'm yeah, it's a uh, it's uh, it's. It's it's quite a day when you go back ten years. I I, I remember back, um, you know, the visitation, the lineup outside of the mm. funeral home on, on uh, Main West, across from Mac, and uh, and the, the insanity that was going on there. I remember, you know, people were bringing in bouquets of flowers in 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 red Converse running shoes mm. that would lay next to the coffin. There were mm-hmm. people were bringing in bent microphone stands next to the coffin he was in his uh he broke a few of those in his time he sure did (laughs) you know they're not meant to support the weight of a human being apparently not (laughs) not the way he put that weight on them it was amazing so uh yeah the band's still going on though you know i I, they have uh two concerts coming up uh at the end of uh, next month at uh we had them all we had them in here just a while ago uh because they were playing over at westdale well, that's uh, and that's a, that's was, such we, an important show. You they know? were so excited. It was great to have them on before that. It was back funny. to the same place where they, yeah. they played. Uh, that was the first show in 1975 at the cap, cafeteria in Westdale. You know, there's a at that show too. I don't know if they mentioned it to you then. Um, there is a full documentary film crew yep. with them. They and were they, here. They came they, in when we were doing the interview. Yeah. Just had them been uh, here uh, last week at the, yeah. at the Spectator. They're, and they're, that's going to be cool. That's going to be a great uh, film. They're expecting that, uh, uh, to have it completed uh, uh, sometime probably late next year. It'll be debut. Maybe TIFF. Who knows? Maybe mm. Hot Docs. Who knows? Um, but it's uh, the director is Doug Aerosmith. He's won Genie Awards. He's uh, uh, done many great projects, including a uh, prize-winning uh, documentary in the life of uh, Ron Sexsmith. So, I, in those terms, Frankie's legacy is in good hands. Yeah, good so, point. Good point. And because uh, the music's playing on, with Dave Rave, a, a close friend mm-hmm. of Frankie, who mm-hmm. goes back to Westdale. You know, the the, the early years in Westdale. Um, he's at the front of the band. Um, it, 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 which and he used to uh, be at the front of the band in the '80s as well. Yep. So they're right now doing shows as good as I've ever seen them. You know, mm. um, except with oh, Frankie, yep. of course. But uh, so give us to those that may not have remembered or been around at that time. Yeah. Give us a capsulated version. What happened after Westdale? What happened as this <laughs> band started to gain steam? Well, what happened is they got discovered by uh, uh, the up-and-coming Toronto punk scene. Um, and this is a band that started out in the basements of Westdale. Mm-hmm. Um, they played hard. They played a lot. They rehearsed. They got their their musical, their rock and roll chops together, listening to uh, New York Dolls albums, MC5 albums, uh, Iggy and the Stooges albums. And then, you know, these four working-class kids from Hamilton went to Toronto where all these art students were doing, were posing as punks and not really knowing how to play their instruments that well, but it was almost a style statement yeah. coming out of uh, uh, the Ontario College of Art. You know, they were playing, they had their own rooms and things, and Teenage Head moved and got accepted by these people. And, of course, they just blew everybody else off the stage because they were so much better. Yeah. And it didn't take long for everybody in Toronto uh, to figure that out. They put out three albums 
that to me are their first three albums are maybe some of the best rock and roll ever produced in this country. You know, bar none. Those three albums um, are legitimate classics, and uh, they all went gold. I think Frantic City, the second one, went platinum. Mm-hmm. Um, filled with great songs. Um, they never, they never broke in the states, though, and uh, that was a tough time. It was just bad luck, an accident that happened. Talk uh, about that story. Tell that story. Well. <laughs> You know, they were building and building here. They could sell out any, uh, just about any venue in Canada. They just, we'd gone through the riot at Ontario Place with 15,000 kids. Got a ton of publicity into, out of that. A lot of publicity of that. And uh, as they say, um, it's all good publicity, even yeah. when the Toronto Sun puts punk rock riot in huge letters on their front page. <laughs> so uh, so things were going well, and they were getting uh, putting together... Um, some major uh, showcases in the United States um, uh, to, to you know, the record companies down there. And it was the right time for that kind of music, too. It yeah. really was. Yeah. Um, you know, the Ramones had, had laid all the groundwork down there already, so it was the right time. And then there was a horrible uh, van accident that put Gord Lewis, whose sound was so important to the band. Yeah. That guitar is just huge. Yeah. Um, was uh, was in traction for a year, yeah. and uh, and so it was bad timing, and of course he came he rejoined the band, but uh, by then we were going into the age of Euro gliders and 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 synth- mm. synthetic music and things, and they kept on grinding it out for sure, but they but but they never regained that uh, lost opportunity, unfortunately. So yeah. Boy, oh boy, and you you have to wonder, uh, you know, what if, eh? What if? I don't know. You, you know. It's rock and roll. How do you, how it's do you know? It's rock and roll, and, you know, uh, you, you get those moments in the sun, and then and then they're gone. It's amazing, you know, when you have a band like uh, Arkells, and they've been at it for over 10 years now. They've got their fifth album coming out on mm. Friday, and it keeps gr- uh, growing for them, and... and and I'm so glad to see uh, some guys like that, you know, have success in it. And, but even then, you know, success is being able to buy a house, just yeah. like other normal people. Make a living as a musician. Make a living. Yeah. And, yeah. And and, uh, and uh, people like Frank didn't have that. You know, they did that. Yeah. They didn't have that. They had they had success and they had fame, but it really didn't uh, uh, come through. In a monetary fashion for for the guys. Why but still playing? Hey. Why does this band still resonate? Why, when people go, do they still go nuts? Because the songs are so good, and yeah. those, as I said, and I, I'm not kidding about it. I believe those first three albums are as good good uh, album as uh, rock and roll albums as anything to come out of this country. And so, and I'm. It's funny, you know. I, I was just going through some comments uh, after. The day after Frank died, uh, Spectator just uh, uh, ran a whole bunch of of uh, quotes just submitted from fans randomly, and I'm looking at them, and and these are people are saying, you know, they affected their lives. People who were like 15, 16, 18, whatever, when they first heard Teenage Head, it it hit them and stayed with them for the rest of their lives, and that's what these comments are saying. You know, here's a one from a guy by the name of 
boom boom. Uh, apart from great thrash and bash guitar parts from Gordy, the band was all Frankie. Without him, the band would not have had the, half the impact. He would growl, spit, and bark out lyrics like it was his last show ever. Mm. That's a pretty good description. I mean, this Frank was the real thing. I mean, there was <laughs> there was no controlling him. He was a mind of his own. He was in the moment all the time on yeah. stage. Boy, was he, he never knew what was going to happen whether he was going to swing from the pipes or uh, climb the, 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 the speaker stacks. Um, he was dangerous. Yeah. And, and you know what? Rock and roll is just like a roller coaster. It's, it, 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 it appeals to people looking for danger. And that's and, exactly what the whole punk movement was all about. Because, you know, you think of the time post-70s, uh, disco era, everything pretty much packaged and fabricated. And this was like the early days of rock and roll all it over It was again. reactionary, yeah. yeah. Um, it was... It was tear down the whole mess it's gotten a, it's 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 not what it's supposed to be anywhere uh, anymore tear it down and start from the the bottom and uh and really the, i think the teen, teenage head you know it's it gets the punk brand i think in all serious frank was a punk but i'm not sure if the music of teenage head was what you would call no, it was way more. It was it was it was main more mainstream, and it was you know like this is a band that people would see that may not necessarily see other bands of this ilk. They may not see other punk that's bands. True. I mean, there was mm-hmm. uh, there there was that's something on my mind. Is I mean that's oh how more melodic they get? Yeah, yeah. Yet, uh, yet, picture my face. Yeah, uh, there's there's melody all through those songs. Mm-hmm. Um, and fun. They were and just they're, they're fun. fun. There's also anger. Yeah. I mean, picture yeah, by fe- yeah, face. That's yeah, a pretty yeah. scary lyric when you yeah. when you think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah they, this is a great band. They, they, in many ways, their music uh, um, uh, rests in the late fifties. You know, it comes from yes. that. Yeah, uh, and, and I think that was one of the reasons I was such a fan because it seemed very roots oriented to yeah. me, even though it was wild. Frank loved Elvis Presley. Yeah. I, I remember uh, one of the first times I met him uh, was, you know, it, it, probably about 16 years, 17 years ago. Uh, he walked into the Casbah and he picked up the mic. Uh, it wasn't a teen head, head show or anything. It was just people hanging out. He yeah. picked up the mic and he was singing Elvis Presley and he did a beautiful job. Yeah. He loved <laughs> Elvis. Yeah. And, and and it sort of brought that showmanship of music back that was missing yeah. in that period. Yeah, and I think he he had a big impact on people. Like, there's a, you know, there's another anniversary coming up Wednesday. First anniversary of Gord Downey's uh, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, death yeah. is that's mm-hmm. coming up two days from now. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be a sad week for everybody from mm-hmm. now on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think uh, uh, he had, I think Frank had a huge effect. Do you think any of this is? Uh, do you think any of this is uh, just a coincidence that uh, cannabis becomes legal this week? <laughs> this is kind of weird timing, isn't it? Well, uh, it Graham? becomes legal on the on the anniversary of Gord Downey's death. Yeah, but I was, I was saying, uh, I, I think Gord, uh, in his uh, early days, kind of fashioned himself off of Frank. Mm-hmm. They, well, they remember what what was the song on uh, Tragically Hip's first EP, uh, Canadian Surf Club? Or, or, or 
They for, played Lucy Potato at Cops Coliseum as an encore. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> and, but and, yeah, in that first EP, you can totally hear the yeah. the teenage head influence. And and when you see him on stage, the antics with the uh, uh, with the with the microphone yeah. it was coming out of there, uh, uh, coming out of Frankie. And you know, he 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 took it different places. There was the handkerchief uh, act that Gord did, but mm-hmm. but I think it starts with with that stage show of Frank. Mm-hmm. I remember they were uh, supposed to play our high school, and then the whole Ontario Place thing happened, and, oh, sorry, it's canceled. <laughs> and <laughs> well, I, I, I said that, I told that story to Gord Lewis when he was here. Yeah. He was like, oh, man, we were looking so forward to playing that high school, too. <laughs> well, it wasn't just your high school. It was, it was everybody's, yeah. I suppose <laughs> that was one of the, uh, 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 the sour notes of that whole thing, because yeah. uh, uh, back then... Bands could make a good living off of playing high schools. Yeah, yeah. And and they did, and all the top Canadian bands were playing high schools. I remember, you know, even way back when I went to high school, there Rush. were great bands. Rush played high schools. Mahogany Rush played yeah. high school. Lighthouse Ian played Thomas, high school. Ian Thomas, all of them, yeah. Yeah, they all played high schools. But, yeah, I guess once the punk rock riot headline hit... That kind of killed that. But why doesn't that happen anymore? Like, I remember, and I remember even, uh, because when was I there? (laughs) It would have been in the late 70s, early 80s. It was waning. I mean, it was hard to get people out to live acts anymore. And I remember, and and our school used to have them like once once a month, once every six weeks or so. And, and and I remember them stopping because they just couldn't they couldn't get the money in you to think pay the bill. What it was? I don't know. It, I mean, I I I, I, I find it, it seemed that people to were more in, more into yeah. recorded music than they were into having a live band there. Well, that's unfortunate. Um, I, I, and I'm sorry. Like, where are they now? Because... Why are, why are they doing these now? Why aren't? Well, I'm thinking more in terms of insurance. Yeah. Um, all the horrible things that uh, uh, that that principals and teachers and parents think that could happen because they probably went through them themselves. You know, these things. People might drink. People but might. is it any different than going to a high school dance where there's a DJ? I mean, it's, you know, mind you, they've canceled a lot of those, they too. They've canceled a lot of those, too. <laughs> no, it's uh, sad. I mean, I uh, uh, learned... Um, That's why, like, you know, other than going to a concert, where would you know when where would a grade nine, grade ten kid get to see a band like that? You don't. That? You don't because you, you can't there, get I mean, in the clubs. Not too many all age shows anymore either. Exactly. Um, and I remember, you know, going to all the high school dances, and yeah, yeah. as you said, there were several times a year, and uh, that's where I. I drew an appreciation for live music, and I've never lost that. I remember when Triumph played our high school, and they'd bring the the pyro. That would cause some concern because everybody's worried they were going to sure. set the curtains on the top of the stage on fire. Well, there was precedent for that too. It did happen sometimes. I, know. You know? I remember uh, that. I remember standing there and all of a sudden, and you could just feel the heat on your head at the front of the stage from this pyro. It's amazing they got away with it, man. No, but uh, uh, no, there'll never be another Frank Vanham. Yeah. And, uh, all right. It's uh, so. What do are young people still influenced by this music? When you talk to young performers that you always do in, in the Hammer, I mean, does this still come up? <laughs> I'll tell you, my son's in two bands. One band's they're cutting an album right now called Bad Communication, and the other one is his uh, his two piece band called Flying Buttress. Um, that's Matt Rockingham, and uh, he's what 
he's 22 now, coming up on 22. Right. And uh, um, sure, uh, Gord Lewis taught him how to play Black Sabbath Paranoid. He has those records. They're 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 important to him. He understands the importance to him. And, and but there's also pedigree there because you in the house. <laughs> But I mean, I think, you know, I mean, it's the same. With, I mean, you know, we listen to a very wide yeah. rate, variety of You're music right. in our house as well, and I think my kids are more attuned to that than most kids. But do you there find is a very lively, yeah. uh, uh, young garage rock uh, uh, circuit happening in Hamilton and in Toronto, um, and it's happening in places like the Doors Tavern. Um, and it's it, and uh, uh, off nights at uh, the St. Hollywood and the Casbah. It's still out there, and and yeah, these people know. And 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 I've seen the videos of Westdale, and those kids didn't have to be told how to dance to Teenage Head. Yeah, you know, <laughs> they they see these guys up there old enough to be their grandparents. But they, as soon as those, uh, uh, you know, that that Gord Lewis guitar opens up, they know what to do with it. And yeah. and I've seen the videos of uh, that Westdale show um, in the afternoon that was played to the students, and they're all up and dancing right at the front stage. Great they to knew see. what to do. Wow, I'm getting chills just listening to that story. Yeah. Uh, Ten years ago today, teenage head frontman Frankie Venom passes away. Graham Rockingham has been with us, music critic for your Hamilton Spectator. You can read him there and at thespec.com. Graham, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Still tickets for the uh, November 30th and December 1st shows of Teenage Head at this ain't Hollywood. I buy them because they'll sell out. All right. Thanks, Graham. Have a good one. Bye-bye. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.